Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Andy R., Alan B., Patrick M., Yarsi S., Kevin U., Paul M., and Matt S. Joining the discussions program today is Mr. John Borjoff. John is the Managing Director and CEO of Uranium Developer and 2B Producer, Deep Yellow Limited. The company has two major development projects, the Tumas Project in Namibia and the Mulga Rock Project in Western Australia. Deep Yellow also has a portfolio of exploration projects in both jurisdictions. Deep Yellow is a significant portfolio holding at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol DYL and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol DYLLF. John, great to have you on the program and you're the first guest to kick off 2023. Welcome. Pleasure to be here and I'm honored to have the, such an auspicious slot for 23. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Happy New Year to you, and I'm sure it's going to be a very exciting year in the uranium sector, up, down, sideways, uh, what have you. It's going to be fun, so uh, looking forward to it. Let's move right into Deep Yellow, specific items on Deep Yellow, and then I'd like to move on from there in the uh, second part of the discussion, really into the broad uranium market and get your thoughts on a few things headed into the future here. Start with this question. The company has two major development projects either of them move the needle with respect to supply side impact on this market. Will there be a third project added to the deep yellow portfolio? Well, we've always, uh, from five years ago, since I joined and took over management of deep yellow, I've always said that two key planks of the company in terms of growth, the organic growth, which is exemplified by the by the Tumas project on our existing tenements and also on inorganic growth spurred on for several reasons the sort of tortured sector uh, that it is uh, the supply sector back in the old days Chernobyl but more recently uh, Fukushima and the disruption that has caused on a whole range of levels that the, the whole sector is I believe in need of real sector consolidation. So we will look at new projects, understanding the, the pressure we have and the work needed in terms of developing the existing projects, although I believe we have the capacity to handle both. So, you know, if opportunity arises, uh, yes, um, we're always on the lookout. And I think the industry for what it is, is in need of you know, grouping a lot of these projects together and, uh, and getting some scale into the business. Absolutely. There's way too many projects out there, John, and the fact of the matter is, is there's uh, not enough management teams to actually take care of those projects in the right way. Just briefly here on the capital structure, there should be about 750 million shares out, uh, about 60 million AUD in cash, the management and board having just under 5% of the shares outstanding. It doesn't appear to be immediate as a problem, but do you expect to raise any capital during 2023? Is there any flavor you can give investors? On our current uh, sort of uh, cash burn, we see ourselves, we're funded for this current calendar year. 
and uh, depending on how much we press the accelerator, if any new opportunities come up, we will always sort of look at opportunity first, and as long as that's accretive to the for the shareholders, uh, we will pursue something. But and look, I'm not expecting any raising during this year. You know, you've got two sizable projects. Obviously, two must be in first and foremost here. But you've got two of those to bring to production, and and this goes back to the cap structure. You know, with Tumas and Molga, how do you expect that Deep Yellow will assemble the financing packages for both of these projects to minimize shareholder dilution? Well, obviously, debt is a, a big issue here, and we've we've been uh, preparing for that for for a long time. And by preparing, that is just you know the quality of work that we produce. That means that. Uh, banks, uh, I mean, real banks, interested to support having access to banks, and, a, and there's an appetite to support uh, from the inquiries we've made to date. We can acquire debt at reasonable rates, and the added advantage of that pursuit is that basically the company, through the interrogation that these resource banks uh, put companies under, essentially the the shareholder can be guaranteed of a cleansed company in the sense that you know all its ducks are in a row otherwise the financing wouldn't be so debt and and then the required amount of equity to support so whether you know 60 70 percent it'll come out on the on the numbers as the dfs modeling allows and um but that's how that's how we look at it just as a follow-up on that, any room for a potential offtake, or are you not a fan of offtakes at this point? The offtake really has to be to be seriously considered. Um, it has to be supported by what I call a proper DFS. A management group recognised that it can deliver, although you know a lot of the utilities don't appreciate that very much, uh, although quite a few do. And I don't see there's any need to go to utilities at this stage when the market is so so out of whack with the needs that why waste time? I think that by mid next year, we'll start getting some reality into the market. I think that the way in which some companies are, are saying they will go into production, I mean, that reality will be that they, they that will be more difficult than people appreciate. It's a looming shortage uh, spurred by two things. One is the even in the natural condition, pre-sort of zero emission, pre the Ukraine-Russia uh, situation, there was a there was a shortage, and now you've got a double banger because you have now this remarkable renaissance, and we'll talk a bit about this later. And so the need for new supply is is ever more urgent, with long-term thinking in mind. And uh, structurally, the supply sector is not quite there. Cameco and Kazakhstan, even they have their issues and how they will sort of contribute to this deficit, understanding that you've got to replace production that ceases because of ageing mines, and then you've got to find, you know, the industry has to find additive pounds on top of that to support this this, uh, tremendous growth that can be seen for the next, you know, 30, 40 years. Right. Just with respect to Deep Yellow and the blend of, of how these things get put together, obviously, will be a combination of potential existing cash flows in the case of the second project, and then also equity financing, debt financing, and then when the time's right and the terms are correct, some type of offtake and maybe some other exotic instruments to make that work as long as the terms are favorable, based on what you said. Um, 
the DFS. This is now expected in the first quarter of 2023 after announcing it will be delayed for a few months. Why was this done? And you will probably can't share much detail on this particular call. Do you see any upcoming results notably different, John, than the 2021 PFS? The reason for the delay was that it came in so close at Christmas or for those North American friends, the holiday period. And we had uh, some obvious areas to improve because some of the late stage changes in scheduling were just rescheduled but not optimised. And uh, we thought it best to give it that sort of six weeks, eight weeks and come out with it, you know, not a completely optimised study because I think the the optimization will be continual and particularly now as uh, sort of the inflationary pressures are looking like there's a trend out there which is favouring production. The supply uh, side is improving. So all of these things look to improve. But in the terms of the optimization we're looking at, well, they're just sort of fairly fundamental uh, optimizations, and we do expect that it will be in the range of what the PFS indicated. Finally, it, it will be, you know, once once we do our sort of modelling again. And um, But I think, you know, we're all hopeful that the project will sustain that uh, value. And yes, short answer, I think it will be around those PFS numbers. Excellent. Looking forward to seeing that. Just two questions left here specifically on Deep Yellow, John, and then I want to move into the broad stuff, which I know you're excited to talk about, and so am I. The joint venture with JogMech on the Nova project, can you give investors, shareholders an update as to what the status is on that JV, what the capital contribution might be roughly, if you can refer to either 2022 or 2023? And do you see that JogMech now with the market conditions will be increasing partnering on other projects or what do you see there going forward for the future of the relationship? We have a, a good relationship and I'll talk about it at two levels here. And, you know, we've, uh, we're delivering on what we jointly aspire to. We deliver it efficiently, you know, on budget. Technically, uh, they, they get what we would demand of ourselves. So that relationship is in a, in a good state. The project itself, um, I think that, you know, the Barking Gecko will have to come up with some real good results to confirm that mineralizing event that's there. And I think the next few holes in the early, in early this year will confirm, you know, the, the tempo of that, of that project and where we go. In terms of the Jog Meg view, I mean, you can, you can, uh, I haven't discussed with that specifically in the last sort of month or so. But there's dramatic change in the Japanese outlook for nuclear. And I mean, it's nothing short of uh, dramatic, the changes that have, that has occurred. And that JOGMEG is, is uh, an integral strategic component in the strategic metal side of, you know, doing that little bit of high risk investment, taking the sort of raw edges off it, and then once there's a project of significance identified to move it on to Japan corporate. And, uh, and I, I see that um, the need or you know, the role of JogMeg will be ever, ever more important because they have virtually been planning on a, oh, just steady as it goes, um, 22, 23 reactors and leaving the other you know, sort of 20, 20 odd out of the system. 
but now with with talks that you know they really got to get serious here and um, all the other alternative methods for emission control are not achieving target there's a beautiful technology available to deliver and they're even talking about you know new construction so that means for me that job meg will be given full support to go out there and uh, and, and get into potential projects to look at, you know, sort of supply, not only for this decade, but for the next three or four decades ahead. Certainly on this one, Jogmec, when it comes to the uranium sector, seems to be quite selective in who they work with. And with the tailwinds coming out of Japan here is why not at this point? So looking forward to seeing how that relationship evolves here, John, and what their involvement becomes further with Deep Yellow as we progress down the, the pipeline of projects and also the exploration that you guys do have. And with the exploration portfolio, the potential with Deep Yellow is quite impressive. Post VEMI, we've added even more exploration grounds. It's quite a large package that will likely produce notable results and another deposit being discovered in-house without the need for M&A for potentially a third project. Once Paladin got off the ground last cycle, as you know, and got into production, Deep Yellow was formed to be the exploration arm of Paladin. Today, you have very similar setup at Deep Yellow. How important is the expiration value add to Deep Yellow? And do you see the expiration assets being moved into an expiration arm in the future and prove that value proposition for shareholders? That's an interesting uh, thought you, you provide here that I haven't been looking at that spin-off because of just on the integrating development side and the and the expiration side uh, where, where I see a real hunger spot for extra organic pounds. In terms of, you know, there's two stages to what you just said. One is that you keep it within current entity and you make, you know, sort of decent joint ventures. And in that, um, you spread the risk. In that, I'm very reticent to JV out pounds. And, you know, you, you fight like anything for another hundred million pounds in, in the company. And then you joint venture that out and uh, uh, say for simple mathematics of a 50-50 and all of a sudden you've only added 50 million pounds, albeit with a offset to risk in terms of financial you know, cash outgoings. But you have to think about it that a management will toil and it'll toil and then just achieve half the pounds or a third, depending on the JV. You, you have to counter that with going alone. That said, I'm not, I'm not sort of saying I favour that. We've got projects there that I think can, even in joint venture, give a residual huge increase in the attributable pounds of a company while also giving pounds to the, to the farmer need. So all of those need to be thought out. I think that there is a type of joint venture also where the other incoming party has not got any marketing arm and so can be joint ventured, but with the company dealing with all the product in terms of its marketing, which has another advantage. So there's a lot of combinations and permutations here. And I see the, the spin-offs, like you said, in terms of you know, another entity. It's something that can be thought about. I think it's got pluses and minuses to it, and you split your sort of uh, management up. And so all of those things need to be need to be considered. I mean, it's a long answer to a very very interesting question, and uh, one can go on for half an hour on this topic. Yeah, certainly pluses and minuses to have it all under one roof and to continue to build those pounds uh, makes a lot of sense here. 
think we're you know in a good position to do that, especially with the current portfolio. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, the broader market, and there'll be a few references back to Deep Yellow here, just to kind of put some context around some of the next areas I want to cover. First off, the Ukraine-Russia war. This is in our books the biggest and widely unpredicted catalyst to really up in this uranium market. As you well know, war is hell, and uh, the impacts globally is a train wreck. But we've also seen early implications in the fuel cycle so far. What is your position specifically on the fuel cycle impacts of this war and the incidental impacts potentially to Deep Yellow? As you say, it's it's a complicated issue, and but the underlying sort of driver here, in my opinion, has been that that sort of imbalance and using Russian fuel to economic advantage, big economic advantage, and really make uh, you know utilities making themselves slaves uh, to that sort of cheap product, and it can be likened to Germany with the with the gas. So fundamentally. This was always going to be an ideal position to be almost blackmailed into dependency, but that war broke out for one reason, exposed the inevitability for need to change supply anyway, and this sort of dragging everything into this this one jurisdiction and include Kazakhstan into that. So it opened up not just the immediate sort of supply issues and how that's going to be adjusted but it exposed these vulnerabilities which i don't think countries will ever participate again otherwise their public will vote governments out of the out of their business but these are structural things they'll take 10 years to fix um, and how that'll be managed is, is is interesting in itself where investment you know the fuel chain uh, investment won't be uh, easy as easy coming as people believe unless price adjusts accordingly and incentivizes production at all all levels of the fuel chain from yellow cake to conversion to enrichment and so the, the whole thing you know there's a huge imbalance there with the amount of capacity that's sitting in, in russia uh, versus other countries the big the big issue is bifurcation of the market you know does the sort of russia china block actually does come into existence and then it's all all supplies around geopolitical boundaries i don't think that's as easy as that because there's a whole lot of technologies that are needed from and if you if you talk about bifurcation you can then start talking about the the West as it was known before and how the West operated and the East. The bifurcation will have a, a certain outcome, but it will be more negative to the Russians and the Chinese, I believe, because of the isolation that's, of course, technology, etc. In terms of suppliers of uranium and Big Yellow and, and others in production side, I think it's uh, the sort of dial has shifted completely because under any scenario now, diversification of supply is essential and not just diversification outside of the sort of Russian block but also diversification intra-company so it's not just one project and diversification means oh, um, you know production out of Namibia or Australia instead of or supply instead of out of Russia but also in 
those particular companies, they, they, they have to sort of strive to, to diversify in themselves geographically and have production sort of potential in different jurisdictions, you know, like what Deep Yellow is doing. So there's a real reset. These are hugely strategic in nature, and they just don't come about by, you know, just sort of dialing up another company. You've got to have thinking on this, and you've got to have the CEOs of the other companies thinking about this, which sometimes I doubt they do, and how, you know, you can make this huge opportunity way beyond what could have been made before the Russia-Ukraine war. So it's a big change and um, a lot of peddling going on below the waterline. And at the moment, the status quo, the Russians still continue to supply in the US and parts of um, the European. And it's just a great opportunity where even the Russian um, nuclear arm, which is prodigious, it's, it's, it's good, Rosatom, the world is allowing that nuclear arm uh, to build reactors in Turkey and uh, even currently in, in Egypt. And why is that? Is that there are so few good vendors of nuclear in the business and you have to overcome sort of local issues and you need, you really need to say, geez, we've got to tackle this zero emission thing real in the minds of many and why to take off your nose to spike your face and stop one huge nuclear and a very good one sort of group that build good reactors, that have supply chains, that have uh, technical ability. So it's got to be all uh, married and matched up and that's, that's not as easy as just shutting it off as well, either. I think it's very favorable for the juniors. Obviously, the war is very unfortunate. And it's almost like, a, in the case of the US, John, it's almost a case of a debit and a credit in an accounting book of, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll take fuel from the Russians because we have, at this point, really no choice until turnaround with respect to infrastructure and some of the policies. And then at the same time, so that's our debit, but let's credit it over here by supplying weapons and propaganda, et cetera, for Ukraine. It's a very interesting arrangement. And of course, the, the whole history of this region and the U.S. involvement going back many decades is a whole other study of history and you know who, who has instigated what. And certainly there's more countries involved than just two. But, uh, and then your point with respect to company diversification makes sense. And if a company can offer multi-jurisdictional pipeline projects, different jurisdictions, that's got to be attractive to a utility. And obviously uh, you're working in that direction. Let's shift over here to another interesting topic, the fun and often defended question of the juniors who actually will produce at a meaningful level this cycle. To me, the number of successes is very low, which uh, eventually will drive capital into a few names once the market participants see the reality of undelivered promises. When you look at the landscape of low barrier to entry restarts, the troubled deposit restarts, the new large conventional development projects in the case of Deep Yellow, restarts that have already had their deposits high graded last cycle, the lack of operatorship experience, how does this not make the price environment for uranium even more compelling under those circumstances that I just listed out? When you really have to discount a good portion of these projects, not making it to nameplate cake in the can status. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is a big, uh, one of my big uh, sort of concerns. In fact, one of the reasons why uh, I decided to come out of retirement after Paladin was I didn't really want to uh, sort of to come back on the same sort of 
theme song as Paladin, you know. What Paladin was was a contrarian approach based on the dynamic that the demand would start. And uh, if people recall, you know, in, in that period of Paladin, 1990s onwards, early 1990s, everybody was writing the sort of the eulogies for, for nuclear, and it was all on a sort of a, a dying theme. And now we have a, a situation where it is completely different. In fact, when I was thinking about what to do and, you know, where, where could I get a point of difference and to really spur up team, the investors, etc., or the funders at that stage, was that for me, the, uh, the issue was supply, that now that, the, that, that even five years ago, it was really apparent that the demand, the demand side had been sort of resolved, nuclear was growing, and uh, not to the extent that it is today, which is absolutely another equation. But the, the need for supply, and everybody assumes that, oh, well, you know, let's just get reactors built and, and supply will just happen. Well, that's not true. And, the, and when you uh, look at it uh, against a backdrop of companies that were just completely, utterly destroyed post-Fukushima, having had a whack uh, at Chernobyl time, that expertise, that whole business of, you know, what is uh, needed to be a, a supplier of note, trusted, ensure that you, that you, that you can do deliver when you need and, and supply over a long periods of time is, is a really quite a, a difficult equation. And that contrarian deep yellow approach is, and what I sort of adhered to for five years and, and amazingly the strategy that I applied five years ago is even more relevant today as events have transpired. So the, where does that lead? So it's not, a, it's not something that I've I've sort of thought about just recently, and you, you know, there's this sort of propensity to always knock your your competition in this, and and I try to get above that because I think it's even a more fundamental problem that the industry has, and I've I've sort of delivered you know several papers on this where the industry really has to invest in young people, new people, uh, and has to compete against a burgeoning lithium battery metal business where it's dragging expertise. So you've got a, an industry that has been mauled and in a, in a lot of those juniors, they were on survival mode, you know, with one oxygen tank uh, sitting there, just moving along, raising a bit of money, uh, doing it, tickling up their DFSs, their one single project DFSs with, you know, a CEO and a, and a board which in most cases at best needs uh, rejuvenation. Now it comes where these companies, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, we're going to now change our DNA. The DNA can only change by changing the people and, and getting the new breed in there. So there is an issue, and, it's, and, and anybody can work that out. It's not for me to say. And the, at every level, you know, financing, reading the scripture of a DFS, how do you get that huge complication of, of expertise together and working in a team, not in a heroic sense where one guy, there's no such thing, one guy does it all, it has to, but it has to be led, it has to be sort of overviewed by a, a, a competent board that understands and has experience across the whole uh, sphere. So there is a, an issue there, and I think that even at the time when I started Paladin up, there, there was about a 60% failure in project startups. 
I'm not saying it's going to be like that now, but there will be, even if you say a 10%, 15% failure, that's significant within a very critical supply shortage situation. Ironically, I think that the price of uranium will increase further because it's, because it, you know, it's exacerbated by these other factors. So everybody's going to make money, but, but in the end, it's who's going to be producing and who's prepared, who's invested in, in those sort of... Most, the most difficult asset that a company has is not the deposit, it's its bloody people, and keeping that into a unit that is absolutely firing. That's the hard asset. The other asset, you know, everybody might think it's, it's, it's this, that, but it's, it's comparatively easy to the more difficult aspect of you know, how this is going to be run how it's going to produce the confidence that, that banks have, environmentalists, you name it, uh, is, is really uh, what needs to be brought together. On a commodity that everybody is interested in, or everybody has perceptions, everybody has ideas, good or bad, and uh, you know, you've got to continually encounter all of these things as part and parcel of your, of your business. So <laughs> the long and the short is, is that I, I think there will be um, issues in supply just coming straight out of this sort of sedentary mode the industry's been in for many, many, many years. With respect to this particular subject, when you sit down and you dissect through the various projects and companies, you come out scratching your head thinking, you know, where does this material come from? And what does that mean in the price environment? It's not only fascinating, John, of course, and to some degree, wisdom transfer certainly will happen, needs to happen more, and people need to be more proactive about it rather than failing to see that transfer, which we could get more of that. But with respect to the to where price goes, just because of where can we get material, that's a whole other subject. And I think it's very compelling from an investment standpoint, even given that over the last 12 months, these uranium equities become between you know 30 and 70% more attractive in terms of price while uh, nothing has changed on underlying commodity situation. So it's very compelling in that regard. How about long-term contracting for a moment? Get your thoughts on a few things here. The term volumes came in near that 100 million pound mark for 2022. We haven't seen the final numbers, but it should be quite close to that number, plus or minus. Is this, in your view, the start of a sustained trend in contracting volumes north of 100 million pounds per year? And do you expect term pricing to reach a level that incentivizes new development during 2023? Or do you believe, as you alluded to earlier, does that seem like that is more like a 2024 proposition? I think realistically, and looking at the timelines of what's happening where uh, utilities need to sort of replenish and get into you know real sort of inventory building that one would think this needs to happen during 2023 there's a whole lot of sort of preparation things that have been going on each adding to this sort of conclusion and you know when you look at the spot and the yellow cakes of the world and what they they're really dealing in the peripherals here and using that as the sort of lever to get the, the big machine, the big engine going, which dwarfs, absolutely dwarfs any of the sort of uh, warehouses. So I think the market is still absolutely confused. I think that the utilities are looking backwards to go forwards, and that's absolutely the wrong way. And by that, what I mean is 
I don't care if they don't increase prices in the sense that I care, but I don't care for them because they won't have supply. That's it, Q, QED. There is price is what's going to uh, generate new production and a growing and a this unbelievable growing industry. The responsibility is for these utilities to get off their asses and start being well putting pricing out there that incentivizes production in the real sense. This is not incentivizing at the edge, you know, in this marginal deposit or this. This is absolutely, you know, Cameco barking all the time and even getting more strident now. Uh, where they used to be the real sort of, you know, no, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of ruffle any feathers, but but now saying, well, you know, 1965, and I wouldn't be surprised some of them, you know, there's a $90 somewhere there. I've got my opinions where pricing can go, but it's no use talking that. We can't even, you know, get these people to move uh, from this useless dream that $50. There's a reticence in the utility, you know, the consumers to sort of go out there because they still dream that they'll find the odd little pound here and do a little bit there and the market is 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 acting surreptitiously. And when fear of supply comes in, I can tell you those utilities will bloody well run for it and get whatever they can and with whoever they can. And, and in that sense, pricing will, will change. When you look at utilities and you think, oh, what sort of numbers? You know, 100 million to me is bugger all. It's just a, a year's supply. But when, when you look at these companies, you know, to try and secure what is a situation where they're, they're in deficit in terms of inventory, but they've got to fulfill four to seven years out there. You, you're talking commitments of four or five hundred million pounds. Now you're talking. Because, you know, when you get all of the, these uh, industry commentators and especially these news sheet people, it's just terrible, you know, saying, oh, you know, the price went up 50 cents uh, over the week. I wouldn't even record that as an event. I think it's just bullshit. They're just followers and not leaders. They um, they think, oh, well, you know, last year it was 20 million pounds or 50 million pounds the utilities bought. And now it's 100 million. Well, it's 100 million, but it hasn't moved the, the term prices. So they're still digging in around ferreting. Tell me where the, where the lithium people are, uh, the battery uh, suppliers. Are they ferreting around, looking around, oh, look, I wanted it $500 a tonne, what it was maybe five years ago? No, seven $7,000 a tonne. For your refined period, 50000 from 10000 And these, these people are seriously into building batteries because they think there's batteries. Well, these bloody utilities need to seriously think they need to produce clean air, bloody uh, electricity and pay the, the, the dollars that they need to pay to support an industry to supply something so vital as clean air energy. So I don't think the utilities have, have done themselves any favour. They're just uh, opportunistic, picking the bones of uh, the skeletons of suppliers at the moment. I think uh, Sput has done its uh, sort of dash in the sense that they were a very good uh, voice for uh, showing some of these inadequacies. And it's interesting what role the, the spots of the world will play also going into the future. Some of it good and some of it bad. You know, that's that's the changes of the market that's happening. Good points. And I think the utilities aren't getting serious about this yet. They will. 
and they're picking up a few people who have decided to try their luck, if you will, and in the need of a contract, which, as you know, is well underpriced where it should be. And uh, some of these new potentials are, uh, you know, selling themselves a bit short, I would say, John, to, to put it lightly. But I want to come back to Sput in a moment. But just one other point on, on what you started to allude to. You've been in no rush to execute contracts, unlike some of your peers out there who have released some of their arrows really prior to their targets being in effective range. But at about what price and market condition will you start to commit deep yellow pounds? Can you just give us a flavor on that thinking? It's, it's pretty clear. Uh, we, even in our scoping studies back in 2020, had you know $65 a pound, at, even at uh, the Paladin time where I initiated probably the only junior that had supply demand reports every year internally and, and had done, I think, a wonderful job understanding that and a lot of that IP followed us deep yellow. So, and now uh, the common, uh, uh, it's there all over the place, and at $60, um, you've got doughy giving out product, giving out sort of contracts small, but they still strong indicators, 50 to $70 US a pound. And these are markers, you know, this is, uh, uh, and it's not because, this, yes, it's spurred on by the sort of colloquial, provincial sort of US energy uh, uh, situation uh, where there's limited pounds and they're giving out 100,000, 200,000 pound contracts, but pricing is there. So what the utilities do is they, they'll give uh, contracts that are, uh, people understand that uh, a, lot of the term, a lot of term contracts are based on a floor and a ceiling. And, and the floor and the ceiling is, is a sort of a thing where the bottom, the floor sort of guarantees at least some survivability of the industry should the prices crash. And the ceiling tries to limit um, the, uh, the uh, exposure to utilities. Of, uh, of, of paying too much for, for uranium. These are anachronisms, by the way. I mean, I don't know any other commodity that, that deals in contracts uh, that, has, that has this sort of arrangement. Nevertheless, that's what they are. So if, for instance, and, and anecdotally, people say, yes, there are contracts going out now with ceilings of $80 and floors of, let's say, $45, $50, doesn't matter. Once you have this sort of contract, it doesn't reset the, the term price because that lie is hollow in that range. And, and utilities like this because they don't sort of advertise what's going on. And so the only place where you see real transactions reflecting the price of a product are through spot price. And that goes out. So, you know, somebody's bought some at $80, $40, whatever it might be, and that, that sort of sets price. Once that becomes um, a currency, if you like, then it puts pressure on term. And then term is sometimes, a utility doesn't want to say, oh, well, it, it committed $65 or 70 or 80, you name it, uh, because they don't want to sort of, you know, get this reset happening and, and all of a sudden there's a whole lot of things going on. So in the underground, there are these ridiculous prices that T Trade Tech and UXC put out, $40 spot or whatever it might be, 47 and term price is 53 They're just bloody bullshit. Whereas, you know, in, in the real world, these prices are starting to adjust, but they're not coming out into the public market as a 
an oil price or as a lithium price or as a cobalt price or as a nickel or whatever it might be comes out and it's hidden within these bloody anachronisms that, that are, they've got reasons and it's part of the history and the evolution going from sort of uh, nuclear weapons to uh, electrification and, and a civilian use and, and the way in which this thing happened and these habits have, have maintained. We will not do anything below that the pricing we've indicated. I think there is, uh, and I think you've got to believe the market, you've got to believe supply, you can believe what people are doing and what you need to spend to replace those pounds you, you then sell to the consumer. There's no use saying, you know, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll sell it at $55 and make a very, very short term, you know, on paper profit, but that it costs you, you know, a huge amount to find new reserves and a huge amount to commit into exploration that R&D side of the business, and it needs that support. And I mean, I've said it, and if those that are more uh, sort of cautious, only have to listen now to Cameco uh, saying they have to see prices in the sixes where they really should be. And uh, and then once I get to the sixes, oh, by the way, why should it stop at the sixes? But that's another story. But yeah, that's that's my belief. And, uh, and I see a lot more other companies are coming in with those sort of pricing. And those people that are making these contracts with no idea how their production's gonna be in two years time and have no capacity to understand what it's gonna cost them, they're lunatics. That's it. Yeah, the balance sheet consumption has to be considered in, like you said, selling those pounds at 65 a pound, what does it cost you to replace those pounds and keep that balance sheet flowing? You become your own worst enemy. Once you start producing, you start consuming your balance sheet. How do you replace those pounds? It's a cluster. This, I think this brings it into the next piece here with respect to the floor and the ceilings in these term contracts and how the spot market can also be a, a bit of a use uh, in a few things. And that is, as a company fills out their term contract portfolio, John, with term contracts, probably underpinning break-even plus profit plus replacement of pounds, if you're reasonably intelligent, those numbers, but then, you know, sustaining the business in those term contracts, but then you have that optionality slash, you know, leverage of what can you do in the spot market with spot price exposure, especially if you have a, a view on where price goes during the cycle. What do you think is useful there in terms of leaving some of that production profile open towards opportunistic spot sales to take advantage of this market. So all of that's uh, fine. You know, there's a lot of ways you can you can build a term contract on its own priced at the term contract, the published term, term contract uh, prices. And the other one is on spot. So spot can be used as a term contract determinant as well. But the, the whole issue is it still hides the price that the commodity is being sold at. And I think that juniors who know very little about the market can be cajoled into putting, getting product out there, you know, and committing to it, setting unrealistic examples because they're not, they're not made with any sense of understanding what the markets are. So that area needs to be uh, sort of fixed as well. And the only way that'll be fixed is it's no use the utility having a, a favourable contract with an idiotic junior when that junior can never supply the product that it says it will. And, and there's a very real possibility of this occurring. 
So we're going through this sort of testing period when you look at, if you say there are 15 companies that sort of think they have uh, production capability, they've got a DNS or they've got something there, and, and then when you boil it down to say, oh, how many of these people can actually produce? I mean, you've got two maybe in the US, but they're small producers. One of them is trying to consolidate and building a team and trying to do that. In other countries, uh, there may be, you know, kindly two or three, and, and some of those are not uh, going to be producing at scale. And, and the rest are, are yet to sort of, you know, oh, well, we'd better, we'd better hire some people. And then saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to, go, I'm going to get a, a, a COO, you know, and he's going to, well, no one person is going to solve this problem for a company. You know, you've got to put money, invest money, you've got to put money into it, you you hire somebody and you, you haven't got a bloody clue what he's, whether he's good or bad for six months and you're taking, you know, you're putting that risk in your company where everybody's learning and trying to sort something, some things out. And um, so this, uh, the spot will start being a more, more real thing. But spot is, uh, if companies are doing spot to, to solve the long-term supplies off the spot market, that's not possible. You're just picking up incidental pounds. And really, you need to pick up pounds that are built into into production profiles and all of this and, uh, you know, a company that may be producing, you know, 2 million pounds over 10 years. So there's 20 million pounds there available for current money or so. You know, that's not going to be on, on spot price. It'll be under term condition where the utility knows it's going to get, you know, 500,000 pounds per year over five years or whatever it might be. And they are assured and the producer is assured, but assured also of uh, uh, getting good pricing. But who's going to start something off on a term contract that may range from $40, $40 to $80? Who's the financier that's going to back that? Well, the financier will only back it on the floor. So you need fixed prices in there that are in the area that is going to be to initiate new production. And therein starts the problem. And uh, those, those, those groups that, that don't need that much funding, well, they don't produce that much pounds either. So that's not going to help. The issues of transitioning into reality is, is the interesting part here. There's the reality of what's happening in terms of, you know, we talked about the war, we talked about zero emission, which nobody really understands the implications of this, but anyway, that's another story. But now you, you know, you've got the, uh, the issue of, of supply, actual supply, and, and who's going to throw their hat into, into a sort of chaotic thing. I'm not interested in uh, being the first cab off the rank and being, no. uh, you know, the pig to the slaughter. Don't have to exit out of the trench first on this one. You can be selective about your exit out of that trench, but just the issues surrounding some of the pricing and being generous with a, a few numbers that might actually finally get there. And then, of course, you got the ones that will probably relabel some inventory and call it production. <laughs> That's right. I, I know we got limited time here, and I got a few more questions here I'd like to touch on before we go. The topic of the spot market is, is what we were discussing here. And as you alluded to last year, uh, the Sprott uh, Fund, the physical uranium fund, uh, did test the market with a depth test on the spot market. And we saw a little bit of results from that, and the accelerator has been backed off ever since. But what do you see happening with respect to the spot market in the future? 
and just discussing spot prices, what you saw last cycle, escalation adjusted now, given that uh, I think going forward here, it's safe to say that incentive price in 2022, 2023 is a lot different than incentive price in 2020. You saw what happened last cycle, you were part of it. Where do you think that this goes with respect to, and I know we're not talking term contracting here, but certainly the spot price, uh, what do you think happens? Do you think that this is a, a pretty strong move that could challenge the last uh, cycle highs beyond? What do you think? Well, I, I think that the, the, the whole thing will be driven not by people barracking on the sidelines, like, you know, the sprots of the world saying, you know, oh, yeah, you think, oh, they got to, it's, it's got to be uh, initiated by that primordial emotion called fear, fear of not having enough supply. And that'll be the driver. I think that the spot price, as far as what SPOT has been doing uh, over the last uh, two years, which has been a, a, a good thing in terms of exposing some issues, but I think that's essentially a done thing. And I, and, I, and I don't think that there'll be uh, many more pounds that will be put out on spot price in the $40 mark. Uh, well, if they do, there'll be the buying of, the, of, of a lifetime, you know, where this, this product is going to be quickly go to higher levels. But if spot gets to $60, for instance, and all that is is a, is a signal to where, where term prices need, need to be, because generally speaking, term prices have a 15 to 20% premium on spot. And then the reason is real there because, you know, people are committing real pounds uh, to a client. That client can, in a traditional sense, rest easy that the supply is coming. So hence this appreciation, historical terms, that the, the coverage you give for such a, a critical part of supplying electricity into nuclear is you, you have this premium. And I don't know how much of an appetite the spots of the world have to buy product at higher prices because they're looking at, you know, embedding value into those purchases. So if you buy it at $60, you've got to see that the, uh, that the price of uranium is going to be $100 to make it worthwhile for them to, to accumulate more pounds in that. So I see that there will be, you know, probably more caution in that side as, as things start tightening up because it's not just price that's important, it's the volume that you can get at that price. So you might be able to pick up, you know, 50,000 pounds. Well, it's not worth anything to anybody in that sense. You've really got to get serious pounds. And, of course, you'll never get into term prices where you're, you're committing, you know, 500,000 pounds a year or, you know, whatever it is over five years. <laughs> There's no way that that, that that will be committed at ridiculous price unless the floors go up to 55, 60, and then those floors then have some sort of meaning. So these, all of these adjustments, uh, I don't think you can have uh, moving into this new world, the new appreciation, utilities understanding what, what's going on. I think a lot of the uh, situation is is that you know, the Cameco, they put out a huge amount of pounds. I think they didn't do the right thing to themselves, to their shareholders, because they're locking themselves out of upside. And finally, that's all they should be looking out for, their shareholders. But nevertheless, there's going to be a lot more pounds needed. So that won't matter in terms of holding price down or anything like that. 
the ease transactions of spot or spots and that I think has moved on. I appreciate the insights on that. I just want to go back on this topic before we move on here to what you said about fear. Some see this market as a longer term move higher in the lieu of a rapid spike similar to last cycle. Fear, once again, what, what is your position on this? Do you think this is a linear line or is, does this turn into an exponential line? Oh, I think that the, the dynamics of demand now have changed so drastically that there's a long-term thinking already. There's a there's a marker out there in 2020, 2060, 2050 uh, of, uh, you know, everybody you know, talking about this uh, zero emission idiocy. Uh, well, it's good to talk about it, but, you know, how you'd achieve it. So in, in a way, and as nuclear is building into this sort of help the situation out because of the utter failing of renewables uh, in, the, in the real sense, and so demand will be has been given a long throw. Uh, this hasn't happened before like this, and this has to be structurally embedded in terms of supply contracts. So I see that with the the issues with supply, the real now commitment to long-term need to fix up the emissions uh, issues, uh, which nuclear is a real big part, that I see a sustained uh, uranium price out there and all the other fuel cycles. And it's not just, you know, a spontaneous you know, bam, wham, and down it goes again. There are other factors now contributing to the long-term sustainability of, uh, you know, high uranium prices. Well, why use the word high? Sustainable uh, uh, pricing that uh, is, is, is fair to everybody and a fuel price that recognises you know, the real value that comes out of, uh, you know, using this technology to solve problems, which probably uh, no other technology contribute so much toward. Right. And a price that reflects the problems the industry is faced and is yes. facing and will yes. face. <laughs> yes. The Chemical Brookfield Westinghouse deal. What does this mean for you and how will it impact the juniors? Well, I don't know if even Chemica understands the implications of what's going on. I've heard all sorts of stories, you know, that, that in the end it's going to be a reverse takeover, that the, the, the dominator will, will dominate. And so in that way, you know, what, what is Chemico's future role? Uh, you know, it's conjecture. The bigger you make that deal, the bigger the, the implications long-term, how this is going to be whether it marginalises Cabaco's production and then centres around the sort of real investment end, uh, which is, you know, design reactors and building the, the infrastructure is, is something that's fascinating and, uh, and, and we'll have to see how it works out. I think it's, uh, you know, it's in amongst those tall timbers of, of companies, but uh, I think it creates opportunities, not in the sense of uh, Cabaco assets, but in terms of how this... Uh, this dynamic of the supply sector will is going to pan out. Yeah. So that's that's where I sort of look at it. I think it's quite positive for the junior sector, but let's move on here. Let's touch quickly on mergers and acquisitions, John, an important part of this market for creating scale. Because we know that a single project and a single jurisdiction only carries so far when you start consuming your own balance sheet, as we discussed, and if you're too small, you're even worse off. Deep Yellow has an active M&A book. Um, we've seen results 
what jurisdictions would you consider working in at this point, given the global stage and in your own experience? Would you just stick with the the good old steadies, uh, the Namibias, the Australias, and maybe the North Americas of the world? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, yeah, that's that's about that's about how I see it. There's no use going out into uh, newer, more uh, you know, sort of risky jurisdictions. I think it's all tied in with the whole host of, of issues running businesses in certain countries, and, and I think there's there's opportunities enough within these frameworks, uh, and not to go out and, and look at some sort of South American untested area and uh, and build yourself another a lot of headaches that wouldn't occur in, in other in other jurisdictions. Very well. It often gets misconstrued that. You know, there's there's developments of uranium mines in new jurisdictions and, and how easy it might be to get something like this done. And I won't say it can't be done because obviously you did it last time before in Malawi, but there's a lot of stories that, that you and I know about this and the challenges. Um, and the bottom line of it is, is I think the only thing I could say to those that are trying is, you know, good on you and good luck. But I think that's about the limit that I can say. Um, and I do agree that the opportunities in the existing jurisdictions that are already proven is plentiful at this point. Yes. Yeah, look, it's uh, the amount of extra work you need to do in a jurisdiction that hasn't got either mining or, on top of that, uranium, as far as an experience with the governments and, and all of that, is just a, a whole lot of effort that just people don't, don't quite appreciate. And uh, using horsepower there that you, you can apply otherwise in other jurisdictions to much greater effect. Right. Two questions on the U.S., John, and then we'll go to a wrap-up here. But before that, last thing, Niger competes with Namibia for the top spot of African-based uranium mining jurisdictions. What is your view on Niger? Obviously, I think you and I both agree that Namibia is better, but what is your view on Niger at this point? Well, I, I think it's it's got a history of production. It's got a history that's uh, it's had support from uh, the government even a bit rocky with the French for misdemeanors they did. But, you know, I'd rather be a junior in, in Namibia than a junior in uh, Niger. That's not to say anything against Niger, but it's just, a, you know, you just need a, a sort of other aspects of, of management there that, to, to get projects going. Although Global Atomics is doing well, they're, they're proceeding along. And, but Namibia and, and Niger are the only two, I think, viable places and spaces where one could look at future supply. The U.S. entered a pretty unique position here, not during the 232 petition specifically, but notably when the war started uh, earlier in 2022. What are your thoughts on the U.S. now, given the events uh, as a jurisdiction for uranium? And with that, John, just simply, is there a company or two there that you like or maybe are doing a good job? Well, uh, look, everybody there is sort of sizing up, doing, taking different approaches. Some are diversifying, some are just accumulating pounds, some are holding the status quo within their sort of limited footprints that they have, and others, one in particular, are really trying to develop a company of scale within a, a jurisdiction that only offers, uh, you know, small output for each operation. So you need multiple operations to scale up to sort of four, three, two, three million pounds. Yes, there are groups that, that are doing it. They're, they're all 
all trying to, as I say, jockey in, uh, in a, into a position, not looking at the real fundamentals of supply as an independent, but more looking at the mothership to supply subsidies and all of these sort of things. And I don't think any of those jurisdictions that operate that way can have a sustainable business owner. John, do you think uh, there should be more consolidation in the U.S.? Yes, I think there should. But there's got to be a purpose to this consolidation. You know, it can't be just sort of gathering pounds together and, and, uh, and thinking that's the be-all and end-all. Um, it's got to be, say, you know, of the pounds you've accumulated, 200 or 100 million of those are within, you know, projects that have some sort of durability and sustainability. And some of those other pounds are just there, just froth filling out the, the book, if you like, and, uh, and maybe fitting into exploration potential uh, down the line with a lot more investment needed in them. Right. No, I think that sums it up pretty well on that. And uh, I think there are a few classes of companies you categorize there just based on your comments. Well, John, look, we could keep talking here for a while, but I know we've both got other things to attend to. So let's leave it there. Last thing for investors who are listening, some of those new to the deep yellow narrative, the company has a market capitalization of about 510 million Australian. What would you say to those who are interested in deep yellow and the opportunity the company provides at this stage in the market and current equity price levels? So look, I think you know, it's, it's really uh, good to for everybody to get their own impression. But when you look at the deep yellow sort of uh, since the merger, it's sort of range market cap, I think, go ranging from 900 million where it got to in the month after and then and now, as you say, to 540. Well, I think that that gap is there to fill, you know, and, and as things happen, it will get there. So there is good, there is value in the company and that value is not just based on, you know, just a chartist's point of view, but uh, also with, I think, the horsepower in the company to deliver the credibility that it is delivering its ensemble and that we don't sort of say one thing and do another. And I think it's all coming into a space that is being vindicated as far as what the DBL has been building toward. And, uh, and, and I, I see us sort of continuing getting uh, value into the, the company, even within the current uh, sort of assets that, is, that it has under its belt. Over. And John, the best way for investors, uh, general inquiries to the company, what's the best way that they can contact the company? Through our website, directly to me, john.borshoff at deepyellow.com.au. We're also now put added emphasis in terms of doing roadshows in the North Americas to help support our growing uh, shareholder base in, uh, through the OTC platform. But any inquiries here will be answered, especially if they quote the Andrew Weekly Connection. Well, John, look, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on for a formal program. Looking forward to catching up soon. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Andrew, and uh, all the best for the new year. We'll stay in touch.